I'm sitting on the second floor of the courthouse, and it occurs to me I'm the only man in sight. Downstairs, there's more than enough testosterone, along with lots of weaponry backing up bull-necked guys in cheap uniforms manning metal detectors. But up here, it's the usual battalion of women attorneys. Dozens of mothers who far too often aren't joined by deadbeat fathers. Even the cleaning staff on the second floor is all female, and all African-American or Latino. They move invisibly alongside Ivy League lawyers here in America, where professors preach we're all equal under the law's blindfold. Hillary is delivering to Judge Westfall a stack of documents punctuated by the necessary Dutch signatures, fresh from The Hague. She's also updating the court about the 5 a.m. call to the father's workplace being the only communication. Technically, I don't even need to be here for such dull administrative duties, but once again I've donned my court suit, which is not only becoming tighter around the middle, but also becoming more stained in spots. This morning I received a date for my other hearing, the one to determine if I'll continue working as a controller for the U.S. government. My phone indicates I've dialed Israel 27 times today. For some reason, I look across the hallway and watch an older attorney speak to a young client. The client looks familiar, though I'm having trouble placing her. She's dark-haired and rather petite, but the short frame in that suit seems surprisingly shapely. Then she turns, and I notice large brown eyes, and in response to the older woman gently patting her shoulder, a broad smile. I get up and cross over to them. Hello, Gina. She turns, and her smile grows wider. Mike! Hi there! We stand awkwardly, like dancing bears during the organist's key change. Handshaking seems absurd, but we really don't know each other well enough to hug or kiss. After all, the only time we ever conversed was in the topless bar that night two years ago. Her lawyer helps by politely excusing herself. Good to see you. I put in finally. You too. How's your boy? I shake my head. He's why I'm here. His mother, she abducted him. Oh my God, Mike. She reaches out, touching my forearm. I shrug in a universal, what can you do gesture. Maybe Israel and Holland have sharpened my international communication skills. How's Ashley? Gina seems touched. You remembered her name. Sure. She must be three. Yep. And your guy is Benny, right? Close enough. A door opens from what clearly was an angry mediation session, and both teams burst forth. I confirm Gina is done for the day, then tell Hillary I'll meet her back here in a half hour. We take the elevator downstairs and within minutes we're seated at the coffee shop across Sutphin Boulevard. She orders iced tea, and I order lemonade. First things first, you owe me a photo of your daughter. Gina couldn't be happier to pull out her phone and thumb through several, uh, an adorable little brown-haired version of her mom riding a pony, wearing tights in the park, sitting on Gina's lap on a tram ride. I spend nearly a minute telling her how lucky she is. Now I'm unsure what to say, 
but she fills the void. You know, I want to continue our conversation about nature and nurture, the differences between boys and girls. We won't have time today. Yeah, I'd like that. I've been thinking a lot about it lately. I mean, gender. The differences, you know, similarities. She opens a sugar packet, and I'm even fascinated by her fingers. I'm taking a course in gender politics, she says. Where? Queens College. I'm an alum. So's Jerry Seinfeld. She nods. Paul Simon. Ron Jeremy, the porn star known as the Hedgehog. Gina Mock pretends to sneer. Anyway, I've only got a few more credits for my MS. I'll be done by December. Congrats, that's great. What's your major? Adolescent education and English. Wow, good for you. You'll be doing God's work. I sip my lemonade and the moon-shaped slice of lemon bumps my teeth. Listen, I don't mean anything by this, but you must meet a lot of guys at work. I'm kind of shocked you remember my name. She smiles. Actually, I'm not there anymore. I was only there for two months that summer, but that's beside the point. I'd still remember you. Why? She shrugs. Well, we talked about our kids. I never did that before or since. And the whole time we talked, you looked into my eyes. They're beautiful eyes, I, I blurt out. I'm convinced she can see me blush like a geeky seventh grader, like those she'll soon be teaching. But she's smiling. Thanks. Those blue ones of yours ain't bad either. So you're not there anymore. Did you go back asking for me? No, I was only there the once. I can tell. You're what we used to call a looker, just there for a quickie. Uh, unlike my buddy Wayne, the guy I came with. Gina laughs. Oh, we had a name for him, too. Yeah, so do we. She leans forward. I should tell you something. That place, all I did was serve drinks, and sat and had club soda and talked with guys like you. Well, actually, not like you. But the other girls, well, they danced up front. And then they did lap dances and worked in the back. You know, I passed on that. Some of us were just waitresses in those stupid Hooters outfits. I'm shaking my head. You don't have to tell me. It's cool. Well, you've been nice. I want to tell you. Okay. Anyway, I was broke then. I mean, broke, you know? Yes, I do know. Believe me. Yeah, well, I worked for a company contracted to a cruise line in reservations, and they outsourced to Mumbai, and then unemployment ran out, and my mother and I trying to make the rent on the apartment, trying to finish school, and I can't do it all working at Target. Places with real salaries wouldn't hire me then till I got the degree, and my ex-husband, well, he started making noise about custody. It was one of those times. You know how it is. I chug lemonade as I nod. Yep, I know. I know. So one night, my friend Sherry comes over. I met her at QC. She's like twice my height, 
legs up to her chin. She was a dancer in that place for a while. So we sit down in Ashley's room and we start making lists, like where I can make money quick, because the ex-husband, he's being a dick. Excuse my language. He doesn't care about Ashley, but hitting me with all these orders to show cause. I sigh out loud and nod again. And he's running up my legal bills, just out of spite, and texting me, saying I should cut my hair, lose 10, 15 pounds. I grunt in disgust. So Sherry and I start listing my skills, my assets. And then finally she starts laughing, and I'm like, what? What is it? Gina stops, smiling at me. I'm going to speak bluntly, okay? You're a nice guy. So anyway, Sherry says, Sweetie, you're five feet tall, and you've got all natural double Ds. If those aren't assets, I don't know what is. So I go there and try on the waitress outfit, and that was that. No wonder, I say, grinning. Gina playfully slaps my wrist. Behave, she warns. So I was there a few months. Know how much I cleared? Almost 12 grand. She's still shocked, even two years later. Cash! Paid off tuition, lawyers, rent, got straightened out in two months. I lean in close, my face drawn tight. She leans toward me, her concern apparent. I look both ways, then whisper, I need cash fast. Can I rock that outfit of yours? There's that great smile again and she flicks her wet straw at me as iced tea hits the already stained court suit jacket. I lean back and threaten her with my dried-out lemon wedge. Finally, I ask what I've wanted to ask. What's the deal with your ex-husband? Was he across the street this morning? Gina shakes her head. No, actually, he's dead. Killed himself on the Long Island Expressway a few months ago. Drunk driving ran into a pole. He drank too much, drove cars too fast. He was one of those guys. Everybody said he'd die young. Well, he did. The only good thing is Ashley won't miss him. She barely ever saw him. Wow, that's something. She seems to search my face. Does that make me sound cold? I mean, that I'm not that upset? No, not at all. Marriages end. Yeah, love ends sometimes too. I swirl my lemonade and watch the ripples overtake each other, first in one direction, then the other. So what's with court? Why are you here? We're finalizing paperwork. His parents are out in Arizona they filed this stupid petition to see Ashley. I mean, what's with people? All they had to do was call and ask. I'd fly her out there. They're like 90 years old. They're not going to abduct her, but they have to use the damn lawyers. I nod, but I'm thinking how lucky Gina is. Just her and her daughter. Free at last. So, speaking of abduction... She reaches out and touches my hand, and I feel a shiver. The good kind. What's next? I sit up straighter. Well, first, a talk with Interpol.
Then I'll go back to The Hague if I have to, if it escalates. If not, I may go to Israel. That's where they were last seen. I mean, Ben and his mother. Bottom line, she's got to return him to me within the next nine days, or she's going to jail. My God, Gina shakes her head. She must be crazy. I nod. Literally. Everybody misuses literally these days, especially online. But I mean it. Literally crazy. Up until a month ago, I didn't think that. But now I do. And, I mean, how have you held up? You must... I would want to crawl into bed and just cry. Not talking to your kid. Sure. But I can't. It's not an option, like they say. I've got to get Ben back. Whatever it takes, I'll do it. We're both silent for about twenty long seconds, and Gina looks at my face the entire time. Finally, she speaks. God, you must be beating women off with a stick. I pull back at this, as if a flame shot up and scorched me. Why the cruel joke? But Gina is smiling and seems sincere and isn't teasing. Still, I frown as I respond. Damaged goods. Uh, yeah, I say slowly. I mean, I'm on antidepressants. I'm gaining weight. I'm suspended, may lose my job. Got a quarter million dollars in legal debts. I flunked out of grad school. My car failed inspection. And if it weren't for my brother's sofa... I would have been homeless for two years. So, yeah, of course, women are falling all over me. Gina's smile fades as she shakes her head. You're wrong. Hey, all of that, it's just temporary. You'll come through this. Maybe, but still, it's not the stuff you list on Match.com. She's still shaking her head. Well, it depends. What you're looking for. Maybe not for some young chick. I mean, sure, you're right. But women, well, women look at it differently. Let me tell you, there's nothing hotter in this world than a man who really loves his kids. Nothing. It's the ultimate turn-on, for a mom anyway. I say something in response. She says something. I say something back. But I don't know what we're saying. When you've been locked in a dank basement and suddenly feel the strong rays of daylight's warmth beaming down, your senses don't function properly. Finally, I tell her, I'd better get back to Hillary. She reaches for her bag, but I've got the bill on the tip. As we move toward the door, I decide to satisfy my curiosity. I didn't know you were from Queens. She nods. Forest Hills. Hmm. I was guessing Brooklyn. Maybe Staten Island. Gina smiles. Really? Why? I don't know. More Italian families down that way. Sorry to disappoint you. I'm Jewish. As I hold open the glass door for her, I see my reflection, and I'm shocked to realize I'm smiling. Genuinely smiling. I instantly wonder if the reflection is lying. And I also instantly wonder how long it's been since I've smiled like this. A month, at the very least. And I just as instantly chastise myself for smiling at all. Meds or no meds, 
there are times I wonder if my head will just spontaneously combust on its own. Outside, I steer Gina to an empty section of sidewalk near the subway entrance. She looks at me. I cough. I stare. Finally, I speak. Look, here's the thing. I mean, the last few weeks, they've been hell. I thought before, I thought I knew hell. But this, it's really been hell. Just pure hell. Gina puts her hand on my forearm. I know. I mean, I can't imagine, but I believe you. If I couldn't see Ash, she shudders. But you're going to get him back, Mike. There's no doubt. I nod. Yeah, but here's the thing. I mean, I just spent six weeks in hell. And just now, I mean, in the coffee place, for 20 minutes, that was the first time since... In six weeks, first time, I wasn't thinking about Ben or airplanes on final approach. She smiles, the smile that makes me wonder if I can continue standing upright. There must be as many English words for that smile as Inuit words for snow. That's a good thing, she says. I'm glad. Right now, I mean, my life is insane. Absolutely insane. I've got an appointment next week with Interpol. I mean, who says that? Except in movies. Sorry, I've got an 11 o'clock with Interpol on Tuesday. So, things are just beyond intense right now. All I can do is focus on Ben, getting him home, getting him back, safe and sound. It's all I can do. Of course, it's all you should do. I know I'm staring into her eyes, and I wonder, is it possible to stare too long into a beautiful woman's beautiful eyes? Should I look away? What do I know from following my instincts? But later, I mean, when I get back, with Ben, hopefully, then, yes, then I would really, really like to see you, Gina. She laughs. Really, really? Yep. She kisses my cheek. Me too. Really, really. Now go get that kid of yours. I'll be here. My heart, that vessel I could have sworn was worn out, dried up, unfit for service, blinking, check engine in orange, suddenly it's soaring. I can feel it taking flight just as surely as the metal tubes I follow for eight hours at a time. Yeah? I'm not going anywhere, Gina tells me. And then she's gone into the subway. I jog back across the street, grief and joy fighting for headline space in my frontal lobe. Funny thing, how the bliss sears as much as the pain. I'm alive, that much is for damn sure. I'm definitely alive. At the courthouse, I turn back to the subway where Gina descended. I'm not going anywhere. And now a new thought crosses that lobe as well. I've heard that line before. Another carefully typed note is slipped into my work mailbox. Hey, Mullins, way to go, asshole. We're taking bets on how many planes you bring down. Hundred bucks says you kill at least two hundred. Keep it up, shithead.
Paco is annoying me. I'm up to speed on Israel. There's nothing new. And I know all about the hearing at work. Whatever will fucking be, will be. He places his hands together as though praying. Tell me more about that woman you met in court. No, nothing more to tell. Well, I think maybe... No. It's a rainy, nasty day on Long Island, and I'm at the FAA's Flight Standards District Office in Garden City. I've had my hearing, though I wasn't really heard. My union rep and the attorney, paid for by the National Air Traffic Controllers Association, did all the talking. They cited my commendations, read letters of support, and desperately waved the flag, noting I served in the military during wartime. They advised me it would be best if I didn't speak at all, and I reluctantly agreed. I'm becoming used to not being heard on vital matters affecting my life, liberty, and happiness. I was touched when Mo showed up and submitted written testimony on my behalf, praising not only my skills and dedication, but my character as well. He even cited my efforts to combat homophobia in the tower during his unsuccessful union campaign. I hugged him in front of the FAA attorneys when he stepped down. But then the other side stated its case. And what can anyone say? Even as they spoke, all I could focus on were those 158 souls on board, plus the dog. I finally received the sobering news. A 30-day suspension without pay, a year's probation, when any serious infraction will need immediate dismissal, and a demotion to working under supervised conditions until further notice. UFN, my new motto. I don't mind the time off, of course, though it would be better to have time off if my son was on the same continent. But to lose one-twelfth of an, my annual paycheck, that's a tough blow to absorb. Filing personal bankruptcy is inevitable now. Lenny, my union rep, pulls me aside when it's over. Hey, you should know something, guy. What's that? Well, the decision was already made. In fact, paperwork was typed. You were gone. If you wanted work in North America, you'd be moving to Canada or Mexico. I let this sink in. So what happened? Bob M. He nods across the room at my boss. He went to bat for you behind closed doors, argued with the others, told them you were having personal problems, but you'd pull out of it, said it would be a mistake to lose a good man like you. I'm stunned, and I say nothing. He must really like you, guy. Me? The tower sleeper? I'm shocked, beyond shocked. My actions have been so rote for so long, continually redialing that number in Israel at all hours, from home, the LaGuardia Tower, my car, ring of fire, the courthouse itself. After four rings, the metallic sound always indicates the voice mailbox is full, and I hang up. So I can barely speak, when standing in Stop and Shop, someone picks up on the third ring. Erev Tov? I fight to control the muscles working my tongue. Hello? Can you hear me? 
Hello. It's a young man, perhaps a, a teenager. I breathe deep and fight to remember everything Hillary and her colleagues drummed into me. Can I speak to Casper, please? Uh, he, he is not at this place. Breathe. Breathe. Do you know where he is? Who is this? My name is Michael Mullen. I am Benjamin's father. Do you know who I am? Yes, I, I, I think so. Are you Casper's son? Uh, yes, I think so. I ignore the odd syntax. Do you know where your father is? Or Ben's mother? No, I, I, I do not know. Breathing. You need to contact your father. Do you understand? I do not know where... Listen. You need to contact him and Ben's mother. You need to tell them they are going to be arrested. Arrested. The police are looking for them. Do you understand? You have to tell them. There's a pause. I wonder if he's alone. I am not involved. I came for today. I just tell them. Ben needs to come home. After we hang up, I breathe even deeper. Fathers and sons. I'm convinced the medication and psychotherapy are a complete waste, because I truly am out of my mind, and I'm not about to take a beating to prove it to the world. It's a Friday evening, and once again I've descended into Ring of Fire, and I'm standing in my corner wearing green boxing trunks, staring at the man I'm about to battle. We're the last of the four three-rounders tonight, probably because we're the heaviest and oldest, not to mention slowest, guys in a club filled with millennial welterweights. I size up Hugo Concepcion, seeking weak spots, and knowing I've got my own. He's a nice enough guy, though he barely speaks English, but he's got about three inches and twenty pounds on me. His arms and legs are longer than mine, so he'll not only have height advantage, but reach advantage as well. Still, he's no hard body. When he bounces up and down, I see arms shake and belly jiggle. Meanwhile, I had planned to use this date, etched in stone, to force myself into shape. It's one thing to diet and exercise so you'll look good for a cruise or a wedding, but it's another when it's necessary to prevent getting pounded into a dirty canvas in Woodhaven, Queens. Of course, I haven't been lazy. In addition to work, my life is and will be a continual series of appointments with marriage counselors, mediators, American lawyers, Israeli lawyers, Dutch lawyers, union lawyers, bankruptcy lawyers, law guardians, shrinks, forensic shrinks, anger management counselors, accountants, and soothsayers. Still, I've hardly trained at all and it's hard to be optimistic about tonight. I'd like to at least go the distance. Three rounds may not sound like much, but boxers know better. I haven't told friends or family about this fight because I don't want witnesses in case I go down. Archie's strong hands rub my shoulders as the ref jabbers.
Now the announcer introduces Hugo and the crowd goes crazy. I have no idea if it's because he appeals to the heavily Latino audience or if the bloodthirsty mob senses I'm about to get my ass kicked. As the announcer introduces me, I'm surprised I receive a decent ovation and chalk it up to being a hometown hero. Michael Mullen from Queens. I have no idea what Archie just whispered, but the bell is rung and we're both circling, coming even closer in clockwise fashion, as if we're in Australia rather than north of the equator. I throw a jab that misses, then he throws a jab that I slip. I'm thinking going three rounds without touching each other wouldn't be so bad. That thought left soon enough. Hugo sends three quick jabs, left, right, left, and the second and third bounce off my chin and forehead. I respond on instinct with a right cross that happily catches more of his nose than I had hoped. We both circle some more, the wolves on wooden folding chairs baying for us to engage. Everyone's been raised on so much movie and TV crap that most people have no idea what a punch in the face really feels like. It overwhelms all your senses, the brain reacting as if barbarians are storming the gates. And before you can fully register what that punch has done, the next one is already en route. The round continues as we punch each other's upper arms. I notice, however, Hugo keeps those arms somewhat high, so I wait and I'm promptly rewarded with an opening. I step inside and bury a hard right uppercut into his pancreas. That loud gasp is sweet music, but it's drowned out by the bell. Amidst the rubbing and chugging of water, Archie whispers fiercely into my ear, Stay on the inside. She's right. With his advantage in reach, I just can't compete firing away at a distance. We're back at it, and for a moment here in round two, I think life may be turning ever so slowly in my favor. As we gradually meet in the center, I move inside quickly and throw two hard body shots, a straight right to his solar plexus, followed by a left hook uh, down lower in his belly. Hugo groans and drops his guard, and I immediately throw another right cross to that sore nose. As the outnumbered pro-Irish contingent cheers... I hear Archie yell, Yes, that's it! And I'm rewarded with the sight of red trickling out of Hugo's left nostril. This combination is my finest hour, because before I can continue my rather modest rampage, I realize Hugo is the proverbial bear, and I'm the stick. He lets out a yell as he throws a sloppy but more than effective hook I should dodge, but it catches me on the forehead and almost puts me down. For a nanosecond, it jogs my vision the way images jarringly shift on a buffering video. I try to slip, but he's on me, and two more hard punches catch me, one on my left cheek and one on my mouthpiece. I swing underneath and manage to connect with his gut, but I'm in full desperation mode now, and I do what many wise warriors have done before me, retreat. I backpedal, I evade, I cut catty corner across the ring. A few spectators catch on and I hear booing, but the small part of my rattled brain that cares reasons 
they haven't earned the right to protest until their faces have been smacked by a large angry man. Eventually, we catch up with each other, and both of us throw more jabs, though his still sting. Hugo and I are tied up, pounding each other's back when the round ends. You're winded, boy, Archie tells me unnecessarily as I guzzle water. Told you, do that road work, and gotta keep it going, in, in, and keep that chin in. I stand for the third round, and now I feel scared. All this statistical analysis Ben and I routinely conduct has me examining situations now in new, sometimes frightening ways. It hits me. I'm only 60% through this fight, and I wish it were already over. My chin, mouth, cheek, and forehead wish as much too. Those who have never boxed don't realize these gloves feel like lead weights after two rounds. Now Hugo is the aggressor and he moves toward me quicker than I've seen him move before. I decide the best strategy is to meet him head-on, stay low, work inside. Theoretically, it might work. Just as I throw yet another hook at his belly, he lets loose with his best punch of the night. It's a hook as well, but he's got much better leverage now, and his fist crashes into the left side of my head, Even though conventional boxing wisdom frowns on targeting craniums, the hardest human bone. Simultaneously, there's something of an electrical outage at Ring of Fire, because the strong lights above us shift and seem to move from their stanchions. That battered brain of mine quickly concludes, of course, I am the object moving rapidly, not the building, and the direction is downward so those lights briefly blind me as I twist to the canvas. I somehow land sideways, but roll face down. And now I'm breathing in years of dingy queen's boxing ring. I understand my nose is mainlining sweat and blood and even piss, but shit too? I want to move and consider how to go about this, But then Archie is helping me, which, of course, I eventually realize is what a trainer does when her fighter has been counted out. For three years now, I feel I've had my face pressed into muck. Now, finally, it's literal. And as Hugo's arm is raised, I also realize it's truly official. I'm a loser.